Welcome back to the Perpetual Wealth Podcast, a show for clients of Paradigm Life. This season, we're empowering you to take control of your financial future using the core principles of the Perpetual Wealth Strategy. Now, before we dive in, a quick but essential disclaimer. While this podcast is primarily for our valued clients at Paradigm Life, it's open to anyone interested in enhancing their financial knowledge. However, please remember that our information should not be taken as a direct tax, legal, or financial advice. We strongly recommend consulting with a wealth strategist at Paradigm Life or your financial team before making any decisions based on our discussions. Today, we continue our journey into cash flow, protection, and wealth building, the foundational principles of the perpetual wealth strategy. Let's dive in and explore how to optimize your wealth and achieve financial independence. Your journey continues now. So for the better part of 10 years, actually, I think it was 10 years, I had the opportunity to uh, be a faculty member on this investment uh, cruise. So we went on tons of cruises all over the Caribbean mostly. Uh, and for about six of those years, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, author of Rich Dad Poor Dad mm -hmm. was a, a faculty member as well. And he held these like study groups like late at night and, uh, it was limited to a certain number of people. So not everybody that was on this uh, investment cruise was able to go. Uh, but he had very strict rules. And if you didn't follow the rules, he would ream you like light you up. And it was, it was actually pretty entertaining. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember distinctly when we did a study group and we, uh, we talked about the hierarchy of needs, right? And he, for whatever reason, was talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which, you know, starts as, you know, physiological needs and safety needs and relationship needs and self-esteem needs and then self-actualization needs. And I remember distinctly because previous to that, uh, that cruise, I, there's a guy I love, Cameron Harold. Uh, I've interviewed him a couple times in the Wall Standard podcast, and he was talking about the hierarchy of needs. But then Tom Wheelwright was also on this uh, on this investment uh, cruise, and Tom uh, has an amazing philosophy when it comes to investment, right? Which is uh, risk is in the investor, not the investment. Yeah. And in order to reduce risk. Okay, you have to increase control. And in order to increase control, you have to increase education, financial education. So that's where it all came together. I'm like, hierarchy of wealth, right? Here's a way in which you can essentially take our training as financial advisors, right? Which I would say is still heavily influenced uh, in the typical financial world by uh, modern portfolio theory, which is essentially a balance of risk assets and non-risk assets, safer yeah. assets. So all this came together and we essentially discovered a way in which we can model risk uh, as a function uh, of you know external risk and, and control, right? Because Warren Buffett, incredible investor, right? Has a level of education and knowledge that the typical retail investor does not have, which minimizes the risk associated with his decisions, right. okay? And obviously he's an investor, okay? So the risk is there or the lack of risk is there based on control uh, and education. So we've essentially used this hierarchy of wealth over the last almost 10 years, right? To essentially help clients to understand all the different assets they have, whether it's equity in their house, equity in their business, uh, their cash assets, their high risk assets, their real estate assets, 
how to essentially have a snapshot and show you essentially within a four tier hierarchy, the level of risk you are taking and the return you are getting. And this is what's important, right? It's not necessarily a return of one investment. It's the aggregate return. It is. Right? It's the overall return that uh, associated with, so it's a return on wealth as opposed to just a return on a specific mm-hmm. investment. Yep. I like that. I like that thinking a lot because most of us get pigeonholed into looking at a single investment and how well that did. And we kind of make this assumption that that's all of our money. It's our benchmark return for yeah. all of our if investments. I can do that with one investment. All of my money and all of my wealth should be doing that same thing or can be doing that same thing. And it's just not the case. There is a hierarchy to the, the level of return that can happen at different risk levels. And so there isn't there this mantra out there that we're all familiar with that high risk equals high return. There but is. is that true? It kind of doesn't make sense because it's like, you know, what is risk? Risk is the probability of loss. So the mm-hmm. higher the probability of loss, the higher the reward or the higher the gain. So it's kind of like conflicting. Like really? It's kind of conflicting. I know. It's confusing yeah. because it's something just feels off. We've bought into a hook, line, and sinker for the most part as mm-hmm. a society that they are equal, but in reality, they're exact opposites. High risk is the high probability of loss with a low probability of getting a high return. And so when you put it in its proper full context of truth, it's like, well, yeah, that makes more sense. It's I can take high risk and have a low probability of getting a high return. But if that's the case, if it's a low probability, what percentage of my wealth am I actually going to put toward that type of investment? Yep. And that's the question we want you guys to be asking is really what's the proper allocation to that type of risk as opposed to other types of risk. I think once you visualize that and, and now we have, a, you know, as part of Wealthview 360 is part of this technology platform for clients, we have a digital uh, hierarchy of wealth. So you can have all of your assets essentially inside the hierarchy of wealth. So you can visualize how much risk you are taking uh, as a function of the return that you're getting. But what it also does is it identifies the area where you can look for opportunities, right, to get better returns for less risk or to increase your education and specifically financial education uh, so that you can increase control and ultimately minimize risk. Absolutely. So it's part of our educational platform is to help create these visual representations of your financial life so that as you seek opportunity to invest, you can do so in a way that you're more likely to be successful. Right? So we've talked about cash flow in other episodes. We've talked about the value of protection in other episodes. Here's the application of those two combined together. We have to have surplus cash flow to create a wealth pool mm-hmm. from which to make investment. We also need to have the level of protection that our, our basic uncertainties are covered so we have peace of mind, kind of like the brakes in a car that just are there so we know we can actually hit the, the throttle on that vehicle and go 80 plus miles an hour on the freeway sometimes mm-hmm. and know we can stop. So when we're talking about wealth creation and we use the hierarchy of wealth to measure that risk, it's, it's a balancing act of where within the tiers we are currently capable of taking on risks. And most of us, it's we're storing a bunch of money. We're just practicing the skill of storing money in tier one mm-hmm. and getting really used to having lots of cash on hand so we know what that feels like to have surplus and we don't have, feel like we always have to have it invested. Mm-hmm. And then we can be more judicious and thoughtful about the education we take on. So listening to these podcasts is a part of that. Yep. Going to some trainings that might be out there, reading books on these topics will help you become more educated so that you can recognize risks that are within the investment opportunities that are coming to you or that you might be seeking out 
Um, that puts you in tier two, looking at your employment, looking at your business ownership, looking at possibly other assets that you own and control directly. And then these tier three and tier four investments on the hierarchy are where the most risk exists and where there's the most sexy commentary. And because it's so interesting to see 12, 18, 30% returns as possibilities, again, possibility, not likely, but possibly, it's like, well, I want to be a part of that. And too often we don't, we aren't as scrupulous. And you and I have both seen, and even in our own lives, seen mistakes happen that are pretty devastating financially. I've seen really smart, intelligent, uh, good investors just make poor decisions when it comes to risk, right? And we've had great conversations. And, you know, I, I think on the podcast that uh, are a part of the, the paradigm ecosystem, we've, we've really talked about risk being something that's, that's natural, right? We have this, I would say, propensity uh, for uncertainty, okay? Like if everything was calculated and certain, life would be stupidly boring, Yeah. right? So the idea of like novelty and excitement. So when you look at, you know, I would say one of these, you know, it's amazing. I remember, you know, probably the 2013, 14, 15 era, right? Where there's this like Zimbabwe, this, um, what was it called? The Iraq, not Zimbabwe, the Iraqi, Iraqi, Iraqi dinar, dinar right? right? Do you remember that? Cause you I were do. part of wealth factory at the time, yeah. right? And the Iraqi dinar was this like idea that, Hey, if you, you know, buy all these like, you know, useless non-valuable Iraqi dinars, right? Once the you know, U S government takes over, they're going to reset it and your returns are going to go through the roof. Right? So this is like narrative around it that really smart people were just pouring so much money into, into this thing. And that was one instance. I remember, you know, even before that, like seven daily, there was like this seven daily pro, this kind of Ponzi scheme like that happened. Doubling every day, Doubling right? every day or whatever. And now obviously crypto is, is fills this void. And I think there's, you know, relevance to blockchain, but I think like the, you know, the euphoria around crypto really created this very similar sentiment. So let's not talk about the specific vehicles themselves, but let's talk about, you know, what is compelling, you know, about those investments? Why do people, you know, feel that euphoria associated with, you know, something that could potentially earn that type of return? It's kind of a fascinating conversation because everything we come back to when it comes to money is, is really behavioral. It's what we were trained to do from the time we've grown up. And so I've, I've been almost 42 years in the United States, growing up here with wealth and prosperity all around me, all the potential uh, for a future that whatever I want, I could create. But it wasn't until I was involved in personal finance that I started to ask the questions, well, why are things the way they are today? And I was willing to look back a generation and then another generation. And I looked back 100 years and I went, oh, Federal Reserve came to be in 1913. Tax system came into be. Great Depression took place, so that shifted mindsets. Wars took place. Um, in the early mid-70s, excuse me, we lost the, the gold standard, and there was a lot of hyperinflation happening then. So the era I grew up in, in the early 80s, was an outcropping of the mindset of just a few years prior when my parents were coming of age and having babies and starting their family and trying to live through the hyperinflationary period then. So when you look back a few years, you can start to see why we behave the way we do. There's this funny example that many of you may have heard. I'm not sure, but um, imagine you are at a family gathering, Thanksgiving, and you're sitting there preparing the meal, and you ask your mom, 
hey, why do we do this the way we do? Why do we cut the end off the ham? This may not be our actual household, but just imagine you've got this ham and it's tradition in your family that you cut off one end of the ham before you cook it. And you ask your mom, why do we do that? She's like, I really don't know. Why don't we ask grandma? And grandma says, I have no idea why you guys do that. But when we were having family dinner, we had a pot that was too small. So we had to cut off the end of the ham to fit it in the pot so we could cook the thing. And so often that's what's happening in our financial behavior. We're just following a tradition that doesn't necessarily match with what's the current status quo, but that's old hat. It's things that used to be successful that in today's world aren't as successful or aren't as helpful. That if we'll take a look at the old traditions, we can ask ourselves, is that serving me today? Is that still true today? So questions are so powerful. You know, is it possible that the most successful investors are those that best understand and mitigate risk? Is that possible? Is it, or is it the ones who take the most risk? That's an interesting question, don't you think? I do. I think it's, it's the, a question that, you know, I feel would result in why do we cut the end off the ham, right? So from a risk standpoint, why do people, like, why is our society, like, why did we buy into this, this whole, like, high risk equals high reward or taking, you know, putting families' life savings into mm-hmm. this speculative uh, investment that ultimately loses everything? What compels yeah. that behavior? Yeah, so I, I love the question you're bringing back to us because behavioral patterns tell us that we want something better in life. Everything we do is because we believe it will create something better for us in the future. So if we are willing to take on this speculative investment, it must mean that there's a greater possibility for taking the family trip. Maybe it's getting out of the work that you don't enjoy very much into something different. Maybe it's giving to somebody that you care about and needing to pay a big medical bill. So you've got to transition. And so you're hoping that this sort of lottery mentality, if I put my money in this speculative thing, I might become a crypto billionaire. And if I do that, then I can relax. I can let go of the stress, like literally pull it off your body and say, oh, there's that possibility of relief drives us to sometimes make bad decisions. Even though it's the most risky thing we can do. So it's kind of the something for nothing mentality. Yeah. You know, I, I feel sometimes that, you know, our progressive society has afforded so much abundance, right? And with that, there's less and less risk. There's less and less uncertainty, even though it exists. Yeah. Right. But I would say the, that uncertainty principle, it's a human need, right? Tony Robbins talks a lot about, you know, the six human needs, right? You have certainty, uncertainty, uh, significance, love, growth, and contribution. This idea of certainty, we want certainty in some elements of life. Yep. But we, want, we don't want it all to be certain. We want uncertainty. We want excitement. We want novelty. We want the unknown. We want that feeling of like, ooh, if I do this and I can get this potential like windfall, like you were saying before, where I don't have to have this stress and so forth and so on. I think that's the lottery effect, you know, yeah. as a, a component of it. But I also think uh, investments come into play there. And ultimately what happens is, you know, people do not have control. They do not have influence. They do not have expertise. And so they put the hand, they, they put the money they created in the hands of someone else that didn't create it and delegated the responsibility of, you know, growing it, controlling it, and being responsible for it. And, it, and I'm not saying it, it doesn't always uh, end, end up as a catastrophe or a Ponzi scheme or the bottom falls out. Uh, at the same time, you know, history shows that that is typically uh, what happens and ultimately creates the opposite 
of what was intended. Yep. It becomes very devastating. Uh, we've seen over and over again, qualified plan owners, you know, our, our clients who have 401k and IRA money during the, just the past couple of years during the pandemic, we've seen a 50% loss and sometimes 70% loss, not necessarily loss. That's, that's the mindset that we have is that it's loss, but it's just a reduced valuation at that point in time. So the language we use matters. I've got a temporary, temporary reduction in the value of my assets. If we don't need it today, it's not that big a deal, but it's still emotionally distressing to see the dollar value of our investments come down and it feels out of control. And because it's out of control, it feels scary. And if it's scary, then maybe we're moving towards some form of death or despair. And our brains literally do that. It's kind of surprising when you look at the psychology, not the psychology, but the neurology and all those who've studied neuroscience, mm -hmm. we start to recognize this old function of our brain to protect us is still very, very real, even though we have the, the frontal cortex that allows us to think and reason much more uh, than we needed to back when life was more subsistence oriented. Yep. So the risks today are, are vast and varied, but can be easily mitigated, especially if we have some structure to how we organize those risks. And it's not to say that we don't take the risk because I love a roller coaster here and there, but I'm not going to get on the roller coaster unless with 99.99% certainty, it's going to work. And it's that 0 0.001 degree of uncertainty that suggests there's a possibility of death or disaster here that makes it fun and interesting and exciting. Yep. But everything else, you know, the engineers have done the studies. It's been um, evaluated thoroughly. The, the braking system, the harnesses, all that stuff's in place. So all the certainty is there so that we can enjoy that one tiny piece of uncertainty that gives us joy and excitement and variety. No, that's a great example. You know, I, I, again, I look at tools of self-evaluation are really important, right? If you have a if you have all of your assets on one page, right? Our tool, Wealthview 360, which is on our website available for, for clients, allows you to see things on one page. So you're able to evaluate what you have and don't have, and then align that with whatever your financial targets are, what you're trying to achieve financially. But I look at the hierarchy of wealth, and that tool is really valuable because what it allows you to do is assess the risk you have with all of your investments and see it really on, on one page in that hierarchy. And from there, again, it's the same question. It's all right what risk am I taking for the return that I'm getting yeah. and how do I optimize right, my returns and be conscious of the risk that I'm taking? Yeah. But ultimately what we try to you know, direct clients right, is with a perpetual wealth strategy, it's a, it's a protection of the quality of life. It's protection of that mindset of certainty because if you bring the mindset of certainty to uncertain situations, man, sky's, sky's the limit. But yeah. ultimately when you have risk associated with the investments that you're making and you have no control over what's going on, okay, that feeling impacts areas of life that could potentially you know, lead to, uh, to more money. So what we yeah. try to focus our clients on is, you know, once you have your cash flow under control, once you are you know, spending everything you make past you know, the 20%, right? Save 20%, Spend yeah, everything else. Have permission else. to spend that dollar. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What what you do is you focus on okay, where are areas that I have influence that I could invest in, okay, and maybe make more money. Whether it's hiring somebody in your business, investing in a role that may not be part uh, of your profit and loss as a business owner, okay, but making an investment in a role that could potentially lead your business to greater levels, or it could be in your profession. How can you take training? Uh, or get a certification or pursue something that's passionate, you know, that you're passionate yeah. about, right? And ultimately, 
uh, increase your earnings by five, six, 10% per year. And looking at that, we've done the math around it, right? Mm -hmm. And show that uh, the potential for wealth and gains is a multiple of trying to earn 10, 15, 20% inside of some investment. It's, yeah. pr it's profound. Yeah. I'm not saying that you don't pursue what you, you pursue this and don't pursue that. What I'm saying is like, okay, with the hierarchy of wealth, it allows you to actually see the risk that you're taking so that you can understand, okay, okay, how can I minimize that risk by gaining more education and having more influence and control? Or how can I maybe reposition that money so that it brings me more certainty in my life so that I can go out and maybe pursue an avenue of income production, yeah. right? There would be something that you do have some passion behind uh, and ultimately some expertise and experience uh, and ultimate control. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just as you said earlier, that Tom Wilwright taught you that risk is in the investor, so is wealth, right? Isn't wealth That's a good point. truly within the person, your understanding of how to create wealth, which ultimately mm -hmm. is a function of solving problems. If we can solve problems, create value in society, why is Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and others so wealthy? It's because they're solving huge problems for society. The bigger the problem, the bigger the pay payout. So if we're solving problems for our employers or our clients or customers that are big, we'll get paid in commensuration with the problems that are being solved. So think about that. If you want to create more wealth, the place you have the greatest control is in your own ability to create it by being a better version of you, by getting the training, by seeking uh, either other employees who pay you more for the same work or within the same employer that you're working with, seek promotion by solving the problems of those above you and helping them look good so that you can make more income. And oftentimes, one of the things we under-evaluate uh, is the actual compounding nature of our own income. I've helped some of my clients see this, and they're over two or three years, they've had income increases that move them from 60,000, 70,000 a year to 150,000 a year. If you compound that over time, we're like 50% increase over just two years, 25% a year compounding growth it's on huge. being a better version of you. Yep. It's kind of a big deal. Yep. And we're already, you know, most people are getting the customary, you know, 3%, 4%. Uh, you know, cost of living increases uh, per year. So we're we're talking maybe double, triple that. Okay, yep. that is possible, right? But it, I would say ideally, it comes from investing in yourself, but investing in areas where you have interests, right? You have passion. Yes, that's there's some the key. sort of drive behind that's that because everyone we're all unique, right? And oftentimes people don't consider themselves an asset, right? And but I would say we're the ultimate asset because because the wealth that you have created, whatever investment you have, whatever equity position you have, whatever, you know, financial tool or product you have, the money, okay, to actually have that came from you. And it came from not spending it, right? You defer the spending, but now you've taken what you produced, okay, and put it into that area. But looking at your capacity to produce income, it's, it's infinite. Yeah, that's tier two on the hierarchy. Yeah. All right, so as you go through this self-evaluation tool, getting your financial data into Wealthview 360, then having that populate this hierarchy of wealth, you can start to see where the biggest sections are and where you're uh, being most effective, where the highest risks, risks are being, so then you can make those adjustments and get better uh, positions so that the peace of mind is there so that you can take advantage of those opportunities. And many, for many of you, I think it will likely be shifting the work that you do within the employment that you have from one employer to another and just having the confidence to do that without feeling stuck by having money stuck in a 401k that you can't live on. Like, for example, if you are willing to 
slow down your funding or even stop funding some of these plans that are taking away liquidity and diminishing the cash flows that we've talked about. We've got to have that net positive cash flow. If we don't have money that's easily accessible and liquid, then it's harder to make those decisions because what if that next employer doesn't quite work out the way we thought it would? What if it takes longer to get the new job? What if um, my health changes during that time period and I need to pay other medical bills? Well, now you've got cash sitting in the bank you can deal with as opposed to it all being locked away. So liquidity is a big deal. Um, having the protection associated with cash in the bank allows for you to make these investment decisions about yourself. Back to self-love, back to self-acknowledgement. Uh, if you respect yourself, you're going to respect money. And if you respect your money, then you'll have more of it available to make these decisions. So I'm a big believer, as you said, we are our best and, and most important asset. That's tier two. And we're cycling money between tier one and tier two, storing it in tier one so that then perhaps we've kind of reached the peak of our earning capacity at some point, either in our businesses or in our employment. Well, it's then that we start to seek out the knowledge and the mentors and like that cruise that you were on for 10 years. That's where new opportunities in other people's businesses, we might be willing to take on something like that and try it out, but not with all of our money, with mm -hmm. a portion. Right, a percentage that's commensurate with our overall asset allocation. Yeah, one of the things we you know we'll probably end end with this example. You know, obviously with uh, whole life and how we advocate the wealth maximization account, which is high cash value whole life. Right, it's it's in a it's in a class of its own. Right, it plays so many different roles. Right, so that's why it's somewhat hard to compare uh, to you know an investment or to a savings vehicle. Right, because you're just comparing one characteristic. And so I look at the hierarchy of wealth, and the reason why we consider you know, whole life and specifically the cash value as a, a tier one asset is because of all the roles that right. it plays, okay? But also it possesses a degree of certainty uh, that's, you know, not, can't be matched. It's unparalleled yeah. uh, for the return that you're getting. And, and then I look at one of the uh, components, right, or benefits, which is being able to uh, have a guaranteed policy loan uh, against that cash value, right? That essentially could be a funding mechanism for that personal or professional development. Yep. But what's amazing is yep. the loan... Okay, it's a low interest loan, but it creates the accountability associated with actually taking money, making an investment, and then replenishing where the money came from as opposed to spending or consuming it. Yeah. So it's one of those ideas, like, again, it's a, it's a strategy. We're kind of talking high level about these fundamental principles of the professional wealth strategy and not really talking about strategy, but that kind of gives you an idea of like the potential for using this specific vehicle to invest in yourself and potentially other assets too that you have influence and control over. Yep. Okay, Wade, this is a good one, right? Hierarchy of wealth. Again, it's one of those just self-evaluation. I think when, when I see, when you see where your assets are in one centralized place, it allows you to observe things differently, yep. right? I've had so many clients that have just had, they have assets here, they have an account here, they have an account. And, you know, it's all organized on like a spreadsheet, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sometimes difficult to, to understand or interpret. But this is at least a, I would say, a framework where you can put your assets in a digital, very protected space uh, and essentially see the risk that you're taking for the returns that you're getting and ultimately help you evaluate some of the opportunities uh, you have to get better returns for less risk uh, or maybe to take less risk and mm -hmm. I would say invest in a mindset of certainty so that, you know, you can actually operate at a higher level and produce more value for the world. Yeah. It, it seems as though we're missing one component of evaluating investment returns, and that is what's called the blended return. Mm -hmm. 
look, looking at the overall return among all the assets and the different risk classifications and not pigeonholing it to just one particular asset that has produced a higher return than others. If we look at the blended return, it's like, okay, overall, am I getting at least X amount? And oftentimes we're looking at six to 8% as a net return after costs, after taxes and evaluating the risk associated with getting that return. Uh, my observation when I was in my undergraduate work and I had an, an adjunct professor who was, um, he was raising a fund of $50 million. And he would tell us these stories of going to larger corporations and they had about five to 10% of their total assets that they could put into these other funds that were of higher risk, but also of higher potential return. But mm -hmm. it wasn't all of their money. It was literally only five to 10%. Mm -hmm. And so when we put together the hierarchy of wealth, it's literally based on what's happening among the wealthiest organizations and the most well-run organizations. Yep. Yeah, that's where tier one came from, right? Tier one is a is a measurement of capital that banks have, mm -hmm. right? But also in that five to 10% to range, right? This is, it's the healthy area to seek out asymmetric uh, risk reward, right? Meaning you're not taking much risk as far as your overall wealth, but there's a potential for high reward there. But if in the event that it doesn't pay out and it doesn't reward, okay, you still have, you know, 90 to 95% of your wealth protected. Exactly. Yep. And so a couple of key questions, maybe three. What's the upside of the opportunity? What's the downside? And then can I live with that downside? Like if you can evaluate your opportunity based on those three questions, that's why small percentages, I can live with the downside of a five to 10% of $100,000. You know, that's only five to $10,000. I can deal with that loss. But the upside of maybe making 10,000 on top of that, doubling my income, or my, sorry, doubling my, my asset base. And that alone, if you look at the overall blended return, supports uh, why we're willing to take smaller returns with safer money because that higher return with a small percentage can have a much bigger overall effect on the overall portfolio. Very valid point. Okay, Hierarchy of Wealth. This is a tool that's uh, available to clients of Paradigm Life. Uh, go ahead over to paradigmlife.net uh, and you'll see a link there to, uh, to sign up if you don't have an account already. If you do, uh, these are newer tools that are available to you. Uh, so go uh, register. There's uh, no cost to Paradigm Life clients. If you're not a client of Paradigm Life, uh, you can schedule a consultation with one of our wealth strategists and get introduced to uh, our strategies, uh, the perpetual wealth strategies specifically, uh, and, uh, and see if there's a fit. So go ahead over to paradigmlife.net today.